Welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. We're happy to have you here with us today. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. And one of the things we're doing now, because we appreciate the feedback and the interaction, we'll have a drawing at the end of the month where we'll be able to, if you send in a, a comment, a question, anything, we'll have a drawing at the end of June where we'll pick out a name and we'll send you something from the BCI. So we're happy to have that interaction. I'm happy to be joined today by Dr. Larson, Dr. Pendell, Dr. Weber. Morning, guys. Morning. Good morning. So we're, we're happy to have some discussions on several topics. We're going to talk about uh, when to move cows after breeding, creep feeding, talk a little bit about disease control in New Zealand and one of the programs that they're doing. And finally, we'll wrap up with some thoughts on fly controls. It's getting to be that time of year. Before we jump in, Bob, you want to talk a little bit? You just came from June conference this morning. Actually, I did. I had breakfast over there and got to, to meet with a lot of the veterinarians that are, are in Manhattan uh, this week for the annual June conference. In fact, this is the 80th uh, consecutive uh, conference for veterinarians held at K-State. It's really a great experience. We have about 250 veterinarians there. Um, lots of good information, a lot of chance, you know, a lot of chance to, uh, for veterinarians to talk to each other. So a lot of the hallway talk uh, included good veterinary topics like interesting cases and uh, the, the, the neatest uh, fracture we've repaired recently and those types of things. Yep, always good to have, the, always good to have a chance to interact with colleagues as, as you talk about some of the different things. One, one, of the, one of the discussion topics that we visited about before we got on the air here was a question about when to move cows after breeding. So it's breeding season. A lot of times here we're thinking about not, not natural breeding, but if we do an AI service, What's the best time to move cows? When, when should we move them? Yeah, there's a, a pretty good uh, body of research out that says um, actually move them relatively soon after uh, an AI event, so uh, a synchronization protocol. So I think the kind of rule of thumbs less than five days um, post breeding. Um, they've you know you, what you don't want to do is interfere with uh, a sort of maternal recognition of pregnancy. Um, and early embryonic development. So heat stress, uh, those embryos are really susceptible up to, I don't know, Bob, is it day 40, something, yeah. somewhere in there? You know, what we say is those, those first few days, actually, um, the, the, the embryo has just been fertilized, and it's actually pretty tough and resilient at that time. And it's also in a part of the body that's a little more protected. So the first few days after mating is actually a good time to move cattle. And, and a lot of times, you know, we've got, if we're doing heifers or cows, we brought them up to a grass trap or someplace where it's easier to handle them for the AI procedure, but then we need to get them out on grass. And so interestingly enough, right away is actually a good time. A little bit later, that embryo's kind of, you know, done a few divisions. It's starting to be a little bit of a, well, it's a little more fragile. So probably the worst time is about two weeks after you've bred them. And then really give or take a, a week or two or a week on earlier or a couple weeks later. So really one to four weeks is probably the worst time after breeding and why me. is that why is that so bad well if you think about it this embryo is really at a fragile stage at that it's time. hatched it, from the oocyte right yep. so it's it's just it hasn't really uh, what we would call implanted you know it hasn't had maternal attachment yet and so it's just a really fragile stage during that time so very early the first few days after breeding or you know after you get six weeks out or you know four to six weeks out um, then it then it's uh, a little bit more less fragile. Let's say it that way. So if you've got heifers somewhere and you've you've bred them and you need to take them home, either less than five days or greater than forty two. That's really what you'd recommend. And you know, if you have to move them at another time, what I would say is, it, it 
they won't all abort, but you'll probably lose some pregnancies. And I don't know if it'd be a few or a little more than a few, but it's it, it does have some, some cost if you move those cattle two, three, four weeks after they've been bred. Yeah. Sort of the other the other piece to think about is change, change in plane of nutrition too, sort of yeah. coincidental with that movement, right? So if you move them and turn them out on... Um, on poor quality, on forage. poor quality forage, or you know, from the roadside, looks like there's a lot of green grass, but you go out and walk through it, and it's a little thin. Those heifers that have been on a, a development diet now are going to, you know, kind of roughen it a little bit. That has a detrimental effect on pregnancy too. Scott Lake at University yeah. of Wyoming's done some it great some work on that. Yeah, um, and so uh, kind of the, the two pieces are transportation stress, potential heat stress related to that change, and nutritional insult. So you can kind of if you're not real careful, you can kind of double up on some of those insults to the embryo. And I, I think the main thing to think about is just that there is a period of time when that embryo is kind of fragile, um, and, and you just want to make life as good as possible for the, the cow and the embryo. But if you move them at those, at those times, less than five days or greater than 42, minimal impact, yeah, still some impact. Is it okay to, if I, if I have a choice, is it okay to move them then? Yeah, I yeah, as far as we know, the impact would be minimal. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to prove zero impact, but the, the impact would be minimal if you do it at those times. So so our take home there, less than five days or greater than forty two is when we when we'd want to move them. And and Bob, you mentioned short grass. So one of the other questions that, that we've received and had some discussion on is people talking about and and even already we're early June. Should I creep feed my calves? And I'd like to present that to you guys and and get some thoughts on should we creep feed them or not creep feed them? Yeah, I think. Anytime we have um, less forage production, that, that question comes up. And, and to me, and I'll turn to, to Dustin, our ag economist, one of the things that we always look at is, well, what's the price of calves? What's the price of the feed? And really looking at cost of gain and, and what's going to be the best way to keep those calves growing. Is it, is it creep feed or is it something else like an early weaning and bring them to a dry lot? The only thing I would add is also the potential market. So if you are going to feed them over the summer on creep feed, but you know what's, what's that? potential market and then the fall going to be that we need to include as well yeah so this is kind of a classic it depends answer right yep exactly <laughs> yep it uh as we like to say in economics well what's the answer well it depends yeah but but it is a good opportunity to really pull out either a, a spreadsheet or a, a big chief tablet and a calculator and, and really look at yep no and pencil through all your those expenses and what that potential market could be and the, the influence of the creep feed on uh, on those characteristics. Yep, yeah, and it's it's the marginal value of gain, right? So you can't you can't fully count well calves are selling for a buck 20 a pound. That's that's not the number you should use. It's the the incremental improvement uh, within a weight class that so the value of gain you, is the calculation. Explain that more. What do you mean the marginal value of gain? So we don't get um, there's there's a cost obviously associated with um, uh, the the additional feed and labor and so forth that goes with that. So you can't just automatically you can't use a revenue sort of based decision and, and get it right. Because so. it, it's just the added pounds that you put on that you would not have had if you if you didn't creep feed. And most right. of the research would show that that creep feeding is going to add pounds as we go forward. You, yep. you guys agree? Almost always. Yeah. So creep feeding adds pounds to those calves. They'll, they'll wean off heavier. And the question and the discussion we're having here is, is it worth it? And one of the ways to look at that, what's, what do you expect the conversion rates, the feed to gain conversion rates to be on creep feed? What do you guys think? Well, I think the, the, the 
ambitious estimates are maybe 11 or 12 to 1 uh, pounds of feed to a pound of gain. Um, the, the less or the more conservative ones are maybe in the upper teens. So depending on what literature you're reading, I think part of it depends probably on what the forage what the resource what the forage and, is and, and the feed and how the cows yeah. are doing, what the feed is. Um, but uh, if, if, if you're looking at it as a way to um, provide lots of nutrition to calves, frequently you're better off to actually just wean the calf and put the groceries to them because then you're in a three to one conversion. Yeah. Um, so roughly three or four times better. Um, yeah. and, and, and if you had the and same the feed, feed is relative same in quality, right? Yeah. So yeah, if yeah. you had the same feed, your conversion rate would be a lot better. Why? Why, why is there that big difference? I think part of it's probably intake driven um and then the the rest of the diet that calves would potentially consume particularly this time of year if feed resources aren't very good um or you know if it's really lush grass it's lots of water so um the well his room his room and his He's drinking milk. He's eating feed. He's eating grass. Those are different microbes. Right. We got the bugs all mixed those. up. And so yep. as he, he, he's not as efficient as if we had weaned him and moved him on to, to right. that type of ration. And my experience with with creek feed is one of the things that varies a lot from one place to another is how much um, wildlife consumption you're getting. Yeah. And, and some of that has to do with how the creek feed is delivered. If it's delivered every day, there's probably less of that wildlife consumption. But if it's uh, you know left out there 24-7... Um, in a lot of situations, you actually get quite a bit of wildlife consumption, which does not help our conversion if we're just measuring the cattle. But that's when you look at those conversions, a lot of those conversions are based on delivery and disappearance. Del yeah, yeah, delivery and disappearance. So maybe the cattle really aren't that bad at conversion, but you've lost some feed in, yeah. in the process. Well, so you could track that. So if you wanted to look at the numbers, you would want to not just figure, here's what I think it'll take you could track the feed that was delivered to to that pasture yeah and i think that would be a, a good thing to do you got to kind of get a handle on how much it's how much you're going to really deliver and how much the calves are going to uh, gain yeah and we should define creep creep feeding here that we're talking about is supplemental feed that's delivered to the calves not and made in a form that's not available to the cows so yeah. putting a creep feeder creep or some feeder, limited yeah, area some exclusion um and and starting now those calves would still be pretty young to be to be supplementing but some people will also supplement them as we get toward the end and, and closer to weaning what do you what do you think about that bob yeah you know we've worked with a lot of guys that do some preconditioning and and one of the benefits if you're not able to uh precondition calves in a dry lot before sending on to to uh back background or feed lot uh, is to do creep feeding so that the calves are bunk broke and, and kind of used to feed. And, and there's some real advantages to that as far as their, their then subsequent intake once they get to the next next chain. So I think that's something else to think about. You kind of know how to if you go to the buffet and eat. Yeah, yeah. If, you're yeah. Gonna if you're going to a dry lot, you, if you're going to retain ownership or you've got a, a market agreement where the person will pay you for that, for that knowledge <laughs> so that the calves are bunk broke, well, then that's something else to consider. But even if even if you're weaning them there on your farm, and but there you're talking about a couple weeks. This is what feed is. This is how you're you doing eat. it right, leading up to weaning um, as as part of that whole weaning process. Yeah. So I I would go back to on our last episode we talked about early weaning, and and I think that's a that's an opportunity there. And the the take home for creep feeding from our perspective, and and Dustin mentioned it earlier, come up with a calculation of what is the potential benefit versus the cost of doing it in my situation? Because there's not a one-size-fits-all answer for, for everybody. Is that, Dustin, right, what you yeah. said? That's our main take-home. Another one question I had for you guys. 
uh, is there any long run impacts? You know, yield, quality grade, ribeye area. Uh, that's oh, a good, good question. question. Uh, there's because been, that could be another benefit that you could market your yeah. calves and try to get a little exactly. more. Exactly. There, there's been some nice work that showed that calves that were started on grain early and a lot of times pretty darn early uh, did have uh, higher percent choice, higher, you know, so higher yield grade, but higher percent choice. Yeah, that was, I think, Berger and Faulkner work yep. at Yield University of Illinois, Illinois, maybe. But that uh, was they early weaned them. Right. Well, that no, wasn't just. Creepy. I think they've done both. They've done both. That okay. group did both. And but it's so, got to be kind of a high starch, high energy kind yeah. of diet. Yeah, it's it's a fattening diet. Yeah. And and so, it, again, I a think that something has to be. You have to be thinking about the whole, your whole system, including the marketing of where these calves are going. Right. To to optimize your decision. So good good thoughts there on creep feeding. Our our take home is is. Figure out for your operation costs and, and potential benefits. And speaking of costs and benefits, Dustin, you had a you saw a good article in the news about some stuff that New Zealand's doing. Yeah, I just read. I mean, it was just within with last week, I guess they announced uh, they're trying to eradicate Mycoplasma bovis. Yep, okay, I don't know bovis. anything about that. Uh, but they went and they did a kind of a cost benefit analysis. What happens if we don't eradicate this? from uh, the island or from New Zealand versus what if we, uh, let's say eradicate it, what's the impacts? And they chose, uh, I guess they chose the latter and they're going to eradicate it and they've already started culling their animals. And so there's a lot of impacts, obviously, from an economic standpoint. If thinking about trade, you know, you, if you remove a whole bunch of animals, uh, a lot of beef on the market, prices are gonna fall. Uh, now for us, if we're competing against them in the trade markets, probably not good for us in the short run. However, in the long run, as they start to build back their herds, uh, we can get back into those markets a little easier and we can take some of that uh, market share. It is interesting, and this is something that in my career that we've talked about more frequently than we did earlier, is kind of this interaction between you know, national disease control plans and trade and economics, both for the nation that's making these decisions, as well as other trading partners around the, around the globe. I don't remember talking about that as much in past years, uh, but in the last last decade or so, that, that's really been an issue. And I even noticed in my short 12-year career how even the last five years, just from a foot and mouth disease as an example, vaccinate versus not vaccination. I've even noticed we've started talking about trade and all those kinds of things come into into the decisions as well. Well, as someone training veterinarians, it, it's part of, a, part of our job is to help the, the veterinary students understand that disease control isn't just disease control anymore. Right. It has a lot of implications both at, at you know, ranch level economics as well as you know, market, Broader, yeah. market access yeah. and market uh, prices. And they so said, for, for, for our listeners, what, what the heck is mycoplasma? Oh, it's, well, <laughs> and to help Dustin out. Yeah, there you go. It, it's and actually, Bob. It's, it's a, I'm holding up my fingers. It's a very small. All, most, all, most bacteria, most bacteria are very small, but it's a very small. They're microscopic, in fact. <laughs> yeah, most, yeah, and this one is particularly small. It's even smaller than most. Um, and it's, a, it's actually a pretty common um, bacteria here in the United States and in, in most of the world. Um, I don't think we would try to eliminate this. It'd be, it'd be similar to trying to eliminate the common cold. It's just a very common um, bacteria. And, but it can contribute to, in BRD. But, right? it's, yeah. but it, contributes to, it contributes to respiratory disease in cattle. Also, sometimes you'll see joint infections and those kinds of things. And, and so it's certainly the disease happens. So the, it causes disease in the United States. We're probably going to, in the United States, attack it by just treating those animals and, and probably not try to so is it kind of one of the, the 
secondary infection pieces in in BRD, so usually a viral start, and then then the that's flush. exactly right. So viral or manheimia, yeah, and then yeah. and then you'll see it as follow up, and you'll see a little bit later break, and you may see it in some of your chronic cases where it's where it's come in later with with BRD. But we would consider it endemic. So thinking about yeah. getting rid of it, and back to your, your discussion there on eradication programs, uh, this would be one in the, in the U.S. We we're not going to get rid of it. Well, and New Zealand is an island, yeah. and so that they probably are a little more isolated um, from the rest of the, the world's cattle population. But they're, they're committed to doing it. It's, it. They said in the article I read, $886 million to try to eradicate it. Yeah. And if they did it, they would be the first country in the world to be mycoplasma bovis free. Yeah. So, so is it lived, is, you said endemic. So is it endemic in the environment? Is it like to colonize tracheas and it, what? Where does it live? It's in the, it's in animals. Okay. So it doesn't live outside the animal very long at all. So the other way to think so about it. So we could potentially this culling strategy might actually work. It might actually work if your if your test is able to find all the carriers because again in the United States there would be a lot of carriers yeah. and and most of those carriers are not currently sick yeah. yeah if you can if you can diagnose it find them and finding those carriers is hard so uh yeah i don't see us attempting that here but the the take-home is that keeping an eye on what's going on in some of the other countries gives us some idea of the econ and trade implications right. to to us here locally and yeah. so i thought that was an interesting story and then just the just the approach uh, we said we'd talk about fly control we, we've run a little bit short on time so we're going to talk about fly control next week and I wanted to wrap up with a, a couple other things. Um, Sonny Purdue was in town. A lot of you guys interacted with him. You want, want to talk a little bit about that? Yep. So uh, Sonny Purdue is the USDA, or the, he's on President Trump's cabinet. As Secretary of Agriculture. Secretary, Secretary of Agriculture. Agriculture. Yeah. And uh, he came to Manhattan, which is a, a really a pretty neat opportunity for, for K-State, for Manhattan, and for Kansas. And, and I got to go to a kind of a roundtable discussion that he had, and there were, there were a lot of producers from Kansas. So, you know, from the livestock side, the crop side, uh, even fruits and vegetables. So there's a lot of agricultural uh, interaction that, that took place with USDA and high-level USDA officials just because they were able to come to Manhattan. So that was a good thing. Well, the, th the thing that I was impressed with, and I was also able to go to w one of the roundtables, uh, he was very intent on listening. So he wanted to find out what the concerns were, and people would ask him w what were his take on different aspects of the Farm Bill or different areas. He was very intent on listening and very intent on not just adding regulations and people talked about can we remove some of the regulations and he said sure let's figure out which ones are important to get out of there and which ones are barriers to success so i, I was my takeaway was he was pretty focused on making sure that ag was successful and moving that forward so the other, the other thing upcoming this summer, uh, BIF, Beef Improvement Federation. Bob, you, you want to talk a little bit yeah, about sure. that? Yeah, uh, sure. So the uh, the annual uh, conference and research symposium for the Beef Improvement Federation is coming up uh, uh, third week of June. Uh, registration for that event is still open. Uh, notable, it's in Loveland, Colorado, which is a beautiful spot by itself, right? But this is the 50th anniversary of uh, the BIF conference. So um, we anticipate fairly large uh, large turnout there, uh, kind of a who's that, who of seed stock producers. That, yeah, that's a meeting that quite a few Kansas uh, or ranches attend. Yep, yep. There'll be a, a big contingent of Kansans that go from both kind of the seed stock as well as kind of progressive uh, commercial 
uh, cow-calf producers will be there. So it's a great, great meeting and uh, kind of this year focused a little bit on um, um, kind of maybe some strategies in, in terms of ownership in the seed stock business. Uh, young Producers Conference, a, a recent, uh, I think it's maybe the third or fourth year we've had that, but really focused on young people and how they can be engaged in um, genetics and seed stock production. And so it should be really interesting. How to get them started in their career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, that's, that sounds like a great conference, and and as we Beef, work, beefimprovement.org, beefimprovement.org yep, is where you can go to sign up. Yep. So the uh, as we talk through today, a, a couple things we covered: when to move cows, and and really after breeding less than five days or greater than forty-two. Talked a lot about creep feeding and the pros and cons. In some situations, it it probably makes sense, and others it may not. Figure it for your operation. New Zealand and their control of of Mycoplasma bovis. Next week, we'll touch on fly control, but this is also your opportunity. Send us, send us an email, bci at ksu.edu. We're going to have a drawing at the end of the month. Uh, you can send us a topic idea. You can send us a question, or you can just say, hey, and send us a, send us a awesome. greeting. <laughs> you can send, You can also send that. That one might win. Yeah. <laughs> that one might win. We didn't say it was a random drawing. That's correct. <laughs> so we're happy that you joined us today, and we'll visit with you next week.